Hello, welcome to Eyes for Ears, your ophthalmology OCAPS board review podcast. We're your hosts, Ben Young and Andrew Powell. Just a reminder that these episodes are meant for medical education only, not for diagnosing anything on your eye. Each week, we take a high yield topic and talk about the why and the how. And Andrew, this week, I think I saw something that was high yield, so I wanted to ask you what the heck I was seeing. There was this patient I saw in the clinic. When I was looking at their anterior segment, I saw there was this weird, fine, whitish, flaky stuff on their pupil margin. And after I dilated them, there was this bullseye pattern on their anterior phacic lens capsule. Is this something that you recognize, Andrew? What was that? Well, the features that you've described so far do remind me a lot of what we call pseudo-exfoliation. And I know that you're sort of just <laughs> playing along and pretending not to know what it has been, but <laughs> it's, a pretty, it's a pretty common problem for people to have, especially, well, let's ask you what your, the demographics of your <laughs> maybe pretend patient was. How old <laughs> uh, totally was this real. person? Maybe I was just paying more attention because I knew we were recording this week and I had to, had to brush <laughs> up on my glaucoma stuff. But, you know, she was an 80-year-old woman. Um, and, you know, another thing is she kept talking about her Viking family lineage. She was quite proud of that Scandinavian background. Is that <laughs> relevant at all? It is. It is. It raises our pretest probability that this is, in fact, pseudo-exfoliation. Um, and the things that you've described on your exam, this sort of pupillary margin flaky crap, uh, is very often seen in it. And... The stuff that you're describing on the anterior lens capsule is also really, really a big tip-off that this is probably pseudo-X. And as a glaucoma doc, I worry a lot about this condition. But let's, you know, we haven't actually talked about whether this woman has glaucoma or not. We just are talking about this probable pseudo-exfoliative condition. What are some other exam findings that we can talk about for pseudo-X? Oh, I have no idea. What are they? <laughs> well, let me ask you, in this uh, retina clinic of yours where you astutely picked this up, how long did it take her eye to dilate? Oh, it took freaking forever. Is that relevant? It is. Uh, for whatever reason, folks, and we'll probably talk about some reasons why that's probably happening to this person, it takes uh, pseudo-exfoliative syndrome patients longer for their irises to dilate, even with you know your tropicamide or um, phenylephrine drops. The iris can also do some other weird things. You can see it be, as uh, some people call it, more jiggly hmm. than usual. And that's the irododonesis aspect of it. But it's not the only thing that can jiggle around, too. Did you try like a knocking on the table when she was in this on the slit lamp at yeah, all. Yeah, you know, I routinely do that. So yeah. <laughs> it's one of my favorite things to do. I'll, actually, I will pound actually on really the table. Too. Yeah, yeah I'll, I'll pound in the table. And while I'm doing so, I'll kind of chuckle and tell the patient, this is a legitimate medical maneuver. <laughs> yeah. and what are you looking for when you do that, Andrew? I'm trying to see if as I pound the table, the lens or iris jiggles. And when the iris does, we said that's called irododinesis. And when the natural lens does, that's called phagodenesis. And it's also responsible for a lot of the other associated pathologies you can have with this. But okay, maybe you saw it, maybe you didn't. Um, what else might you see on examination, Ben? Yeah, I mean, you know, I now that I think back to some patients I saw in residency, they're um, not, I sometimes wouldn't see that kind of whitish flaky stuff on the people margin, but instead I might, it might be more obvious that they have uh, transillumination defects at their iris margin? 
Uh, sort of. Yeah. Although transillumination defects are very typical of a different kind of uh, glaucoma syndrome we'll talk about in another episode. But you're right. This one has them too, just more at the margin than the other <laughs> kind of yeah. characteristic finding of the other problem. Yeah. So what you're looking for in this is, does their iris transilluminate and where does it transilluminate? Does it do so in the peripheral iris or more at the margin? In pseudo-exfoliation, it'll happen more at the margin. Yeah. Did you, <laughs> I know I'm going to get laughed at for this, did you happen to do a gonioscopy for this patient? I do it on every patient, Andrew, <laughs> in weeks leading up to our recordings. <laughs> what would I find if I had gonio this patient? You might find uh, some relative pigmentation of their trabecular meshwork, less so than in other diseases or syndromes where that's really the thing that's going to tip off everything. But it might be more pigmented than you'd expect to see, even to the point of having what we call a Sampolisi line, just anterior to Schwalbe's line which looks a lot, a lot of people call this a brown sugar speckled appearance. That's another way to describe Sampolisi's line. Yeah, that's not the pigmentation of the trabecular meshwork itself, right? It's uh, pigmentation, where would it be relative to the trabecular meshwork? Anterior to it. Gotcha. And the, another thing that's anterior to the trabecular meshwork is Schwalbe's line, and Sampolisi's line is anterior to that. Well, this is a bizarre collection of things that can happen to you know to someone's eye. Like, why does why would that happen? Why would all these things happen? So let's just solidify for people: this is pseudo exfoliation yes. we're talking about, and you're right; it's just a random grab bag of stuff on exam. It all relates back to the underlying pathophysiology, which is a bunch of junky cellular debris, extracellular matrix that's people kind of loosey-goosey call fibrillar ECM, just sort of junk that gets deposited throughout the eye, throughout the anterior segment of the eye. It's in and on a lot of stuff, including lens epithelium, the lens capsule, the iris itself, even the zonules that connect the ciliary processes to the lens. You can see it in the angle sometimes. It's another gonioscopic finding if you see like, hmm, and you know, it'd have to be pretty severe for you to see that flaky stuff in the TM, but sometimes people can see it. Um, it's even deep in the iris, like in the iris stroma, in the iris pigment epithelium, even in the blood vessels. Mm. In fact, it's even more uh, perfidious, I'll say, uh, pervasive throughout the entire body. This is something that we've only kind of more gradually come to understand, but all of this extracellular fibrillary junk if you go looking for it on a biopsy of some completely random non-ocular thing, you can find it in blood vessels everywhere in a person's body. It'll be in their skin, their lungs, their heart, their liver. The clinical significance of those non-ocular pseudo-exfoliative buildup crap is un really kind of unknown. It seems to really just affect the eye, th thankfully for the rest of the body. What is this stuff exactly? Is this something that we have to memorize? Thankfully, not. Even the BCSE just kind of throws air quotes in the air, says, calls it fibrillary extracellular matrix. Oh. But even though you don't have to remember exactly what it is, I think telling you a little bit deeper will tell you, will help you remember why it, some of the exam findings pop up. 
So consider this. It's a thought to be a dysfunction of elastin formation. And if you don't have enough elastin in places where it should be, go figure, maybe these structures are going to be a little less elastic than they ought to be, and therefore more susceptible to deformation or less able to clear themselves out with their natural like self-cleaning processes. Mm. So think of an optic nerve. You kind of want your optic nerve to be a little elastic, right? To kind of bend but not break with things like pressure forces. Right. So maybe this is why people are more prone to glaucoma who have pseudo-exfoliation because they don't have enough elastic material embedded in things that should be elastic. So not only is their pressure can go because their pressure can get higher as well, right? It's not that they're just that their optic nerve is, you know, possibly kind of more susceptible to injury. Yeah, I think what you're getting at is uh, this junky stuff, this excess extracellular debris, can also deposit and obstruct the trabecular meshwork, which can therefore create ocular hypertension and make you more prone to glaucoma, right? But it's not just that in and of itself. It's also kind of like a two-hit thing. The trabecular meshwork might be more easily obstructed, and also the optic nerve is more susceptible or might be more susceptible to deformation injury. Mm. Yes. Now, one last thing about to synthesis to kind of bring that all together. If you don't have enough elastin, if it's not properly getting incorporated into tissues it should be, what's happening to it? It is floating around as a precipitate. And that is what that whitish flaky stuff is. Just elastin fibers that might not be totally properly formed along with a couple other uh, groupies, molecular groupies hanging out <laughs> with it too. Like uh, stuff like laminin, alpha-elastin, hyaluronic acid, just junk that sort of accumulates around it. But you can imagine that this is truly a problem with elastic things. And that means maybe things are less elastic, maybe things are more elastic than they should be in some cases. Coming back to my legitimate medical maneuver of hitting the table and trying to see the iris or lens jiggle around, that excess jiggling can actually be from the zonules being way too loose. And if those zonules aren't taut, tethering the lens to where it should be, then the lens could move around more than it should, jiggle more, and even potentially dislocate. And if you have a lens dislocate, that's harkens back to another one of our older episodes, ectopia lentis, people with pseudo-exfoliation can be prone to ectopia lentis. Yeah, either before or after cataract surgery, right? Right, and so cataract surgery is much more hazardous for people who have this uh, condition because your lens, your natural cataract may not stay where it should. It might move around more than you should. Not great when you have a phaco needle right there. And they have the worst iris dilation too, right? So it makes it even tougher to to get things out of that capsule. Uh, are there any genetics we need to know? Like, are these all are they all Scandinavian? And are they all do they all have the same gene mutation? If it exists, the classic teaching is that this is more prevalent in in patients of Caucasian descent from particularly the Scandinavian area. That is coming more into question with recent epidemiologic research. Actually, a lot more people than just you know elderly Caucasian people have this. But the textbook thing to know is if you hear the buzzword Scandinavian Caucasian, think pseudo-exfoliation right away. Mm. 
As far as the genetics of this go, you know, okay, Caucasian people, is it hereditary? Maybe it's localized to them. Maybe it's something about their genetics. You'd be correct. And in, you know, glaucoma topics, a lot of the time, unfortunately, you have to remember a random gene. This is the one you got to remember for PseudoX. It's called Loxel1, L-O-X-L-1. That stands for lysyl oxidase-like protein. I don't think you really need to remember. Loxel, just, I don't know, something about how it rolls off the tongue always made me think of something that could be a little uh, movable, jiggly, yeah, kind of loose, like lo- really. Yeah, it's got like an Loxel X in it, like loose. pseudo-X too. You know, it's kind of got that. Yeah. Like, yeah. And, you know, if you dive deep into the literature, it seems like this gene is responsible for cross-linking things together that should be incorporated or cross-linked together, more structural integrity. And if you don't have that functioning, maybe that's why the elastic fibers or elastic component doesn't get incorporated. Hmm. The That's really all you need to know, though. Just the name, Loxel1, associate that with pseudo-exfoliation, and that's as much as you need. One thing to think about in the epidemiology, though, is just having a mutation in Loxel1 does not, of, of course, mean you will get this kind of glaucoma in the future. It just increases your risk. Got it. But it's a it's a huge risk because like fifty percent of people who have Loxel one end up having pseudoexfoliative glaucoma. Hmm. So can you tell me more about the natural history of pseudoexfoliation? You know, in the patient that I saw, I thought I only the stuff that I was seeing, seeing was only obvious in one eye. Is that typical for pseudoexfoliation, or what's going on there? Yeah, so because it's, a, as we've said, a systemic condition, this crap built up everywhere, you might see it more in one eye than the other, but it's still probably in the eye that is less obvious. Mm. Some people call that form frust pseudoexfoliation, or just like subclinical, barely there pseudoexfoliation. But you can be sure if one eye demonstrates exam findings of it, the other eye definitely has it. It just might be too subtle to notice which will change over time, possibly. Well, with my patient, if I let's pretend I did a careful examination of their optic nerve and did not think they had a glaucoma and their visual field was okay, does that mean that they're set, that they're one of the 50% or whatnot of these people that don't get glaucoma? Can I let them go? It's certainly it? nice to know that they don't have any glaucomatous optic nerve findings just yet, in which case I'd say this is pseudoexfoliation syndrome. It's not yet glaucoma. But when it starts showing signs of optic nerve damage that really looks characteristics of glaucoma, right, like superior-inferior rim thinning, ocular hypertension, and all that stuff, that's when we start stop calling it pseudoexfoliation syndrome and start calling it pseudoexfoliation glaucoma. More are in a little bit about, you know, should we be calling this pseudoexfoliation? But we care a lot about it, and I think you know your description of okay, pseudoexfoliation syndrome only. They're good to go, no glaucoma. Yeah, not quite, oh. unfortunately, because the other distinguishing part, the reason why we glaucoma specialists care so much about this of all the secondary open angle glaucomas, is that it is the most aggressive and unpredictable glaucoma. We're talking about its natural history right now. This is the extreme. Of opening you can ha- right? Yep. Yeah, you can have a patient who looks totally fine. They're doing great for like five years, and then you see them in a routine follow-up, and bam, out of the blue, their pressure's 40, and they've gotten a lot worse with their visual field defects. It is the most aggressive secondary open-angle glaucoma, unfortunately. Hmm. 
Um, here's a quick evidence-based medicine plug. And you don't need to memorize these numbers, but just to demonstrate how different they are. When you're looking at a visual field, you know that one of the summary statistics you can look at is the mean deviation. And usually, you know, if they have a completely normal visual field, you'll see they have a mean deviation of, let's say, zero decibels. If the field is totally black, it'll the worst you can be is like minus 35 decibels or so. So there's studies out there that kind of um, have looked at rate of change. How aggressive is this, right? And let's just say that the early manifest glaucoma trial, this is our evidence-based medicine plug, showed that for primary open-angle glaucoma, people lost about one, one and a half decibels per year. That same trial also showed that pseudo-exfoliative glaucoma patients, however, were much more aggressive. They lost like almost a whole three decibels every year. And that doesn't sound like a big number, but think of it this way. You only have 35 decibels on this scale to go before your field is totally blacked out. So it's almost like 10%, right? Yeah. Yeah. And even, even if you did, like, you don't actually care so much about the entire field being wiped out. You care if that field is starting to approach the center, if the defects are starting to approach the center. So that can be... A bit misleading. Anyway, I'm starting to ramble oh, no. too much no, about no, no, glaucoma no, things. No, no, I'm no. sorry. It's, it's good. That's what we're here for. We're here to ramble about glaucoma and ophthalmology. <laughs> you are enabling me too much. It is a catastrophic l level of aggression. Yeah. That is that word literally is in the literature. Like anything at this rate of pr uh, progression is catastrophic. What's like a normal age for them to present at? You know, the patient that I saw was 80, but is this common, uncommon? It's really uncommon if you're younger than age 50. Um, but it is sort of an older person's disease. 80 years old is prototypical. Usually you'll find these folks after the age of 70, where it starts affecting them or starts becoming really obvious on their exam. Is there any gender predilection? Good question. No. Cool. But there are other glaucomas where there are gender predilections. So later we'll kind of do a compare and contrast. Yeah. And we talked about Scandinavia. Is there is there more you want to talk about with Scandinavia? I don't I don't know the uh, latitude not, story. Not that you really need to know this, but uh, some studies have suggested there's actually a, an association with the further north you are or the further south. Let's rephrase that: the further you are away from the equator where you live, the more likely you are to have this. Huh. So. Nobody really knows why that is. Some people have postulated it's got something to do with sun exposure, even. But nobody knows. It's just a weird epidemiologic quirk. Yeah. Listener, it's your job now to figure that out so we can know. I'm like dying to know that's very interesting. Okay, well, now we've properly identified this patient as pseudoexpoliation, and you know, let's say that they get glaucoma. I mean... I guess something that I wonder is, does it really matter if we know if it's pseudoexpoliation or opening of glaucoma, except for prognosis? Does it change anything with our management? Good question. So, yeah, you said it right. The first thing we care about is that this is a more aggressive and potentially more devastating disease. But yeah, there are things to it that you have to be a bit careful of as far as your management. Everybody knows if they're ocular hypertensive, even if they're not, just get their pressure down if you can. In trying to do so, though, you might reach for, say, SLT, or maybe some of your attendings still have an argon laser around ALT. 
Both of those, you know, they're versions of laser trabeculoplasty. Great ways of delivering some gentle laser energy to try to get the, tr the outflow process working a bit better. That can work for PseudoX, but if it does, it's usually going to work a little less well. Or at least maybe it's going to stop working sooner than it would have if you did it for somebody else. We talked already also about how cataract surgery is a little more fraught and hazardous because of those loose zonules. So you're going to be very cautious about it. And maybe even one day when you're doing cataract surgery, you may want to even put it into your little surgical checklist. Does this person have pseudo-exfoliation? And make sure you know that about everybody you're doing cataract surgery on. Because it is pretty common. Like it is, you know, if you're like operating in a VA, I mean, I feel like a, a bit pretty good number of the patients it's not like a rare thing you know that like like microspirophagia or something like that you know you'll you'll see this um on a typical or day yeah one last thing to know about it is you know there are some forms of glaucoma where removing the lens might help a bit particularly the ankle closure glaucomas really removing the lens could help but it doesn't help at all in pseudo exfoliation so just take the lens out if you have to don't think that it's going to help their glaucoma that much. And that was actually like really interesting for me, just as like a, 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 a side note, because before I had thought that the mechanism of pseudo-exfoliative glaucoma, like before this recording, I thought the mechanism of the IOP spike problems in pseudo-exfoliation was from the iris rubbing against the lens. I mean, that's supposedly the motivation for why they get that bullseye is from where the iris is rubbing against the lens, kind of dilating or um, and constricting back and forth and leaving that mark on the lens. But Andrew has educated me, and I did not, and this makes it all make sense that while that is like a finding and a feature of pseudoexfoliation, that there may be some like chafing and such. That's not actually the cause. Like when you remove all that stuff and you know remove the majority of the anterior lens caps when you're doing cataract surgery, it doesn't actually fix the problem. It's more this inbuilt pathophysiology with that Andrew mentioned before. <laughs> You've given me too much credit, my friend. But um, let's deepen one more thing. Why the hell is it called pseudoexfoliation to begin with? <laughs> I think uh, Ben, you and I had okay, yeah, mutual training in common, of course, and we were taught by some of the same people in residency. And sometimes we get an earful about you know calling it pseudoexfoliation, and the often refrain that you hear from a lot of people of that opinion is, "There's nothing pseudo about it. It's a real disease." Yeah, it's true. So then what the heck was true exfoliation? There is a distinct entity from this that's kind of totally different in pathophysiology that's supposedly called true exfoliation syndrome. The reason that our pseudo-exfoliation was named sort of after it was because the exam findings were very similar, particularly the anterior lens capsule appearance that sort of bull's-eye appearance of the whitish flaky stuff on the surface. And pseudo-exfoliation looked kind of similar to, in true exfoliation, how the lens capsule, the anterior lens capsule, would actually split apart, delaminate itself. Now, appreciate all the leading questions, Ben, but I know you know more about it than you let on. <laughs> Can you tell the audience what true exfoliation was really from? Uh, the thought is it's from intense infrared energy. Uh, so the, the classic example historically was glass blowers. That when industrial glass blowers would be exposed to stuff for long enough, then they would have finding it look a lot like what we talked about with pseudo exfoliation. 
Yeah. Just really intense heat. And I don't know if any of you have taken like a glass blowing <laughs> class, like you got a group on for it or something. <laughs> it It's surprising. I've done it once. So um, it is really hot, hotter than anything else I've experienced. And to do that every day, all day long is definitely an occupational hazard. So it's not just glass blowers, of course, heavy industry, heavy industrial workers exposed to this amount of infrared heat and energy. It happened to them more often. It is pretty rare these days, though, thanks to I assume OSHA safety precautions. Yeah, have you? I like I've never actually seen you know glass blowers exfoliation or true exfoliation. Have you ever seen it? No, yeah. thankfully. Yeah, so I can't. Uh, I can't even imagine what a capsulorexis would be like to do on a person with. Yeah, that. it can be pretty be really scary. But I think yeah. what I'm trying to say is, if you've got that Groupon for glass blowing, go ahead and use it. Just make sure you wear your safety protection. <laughs> One other thing that we should uh, mention about the nomenclature of this, you know, if you whether you call this pseudo exfoliation, the the disease we're talking about, the you know Viking high pressure glaucoma thing, whether or not you call it pseudo ex or exfoliative, just to keep your attendings happy, you have to make sure that you distinguish pseudo exfoliation syndrome from pseudo exfoliative glaucoma, and again. If you have all these exam features of pseudoexfoliative, but no actual optic nerve damage yet, then it's just pseudoexfoliative syndrome. So both eyes could have pseudoexfoliation syndrome, but only one eye between the two might have glaucoma. Got it. So, so Andrew has some review points to help uh, tie everything together now. Sure. So as we go through a lot of these different types of glaucoma, the important part for you as a student and trainee will be knowing which characteristic matches with the correct disease process, right? So a few things. We're going to ask you, what when you hear of pseudoexfoliation, what should you think of? And the main thing really is higher risk cataract surgery and more aggressive glaucoma, more unpredictable glaucoma. To kind of comment it the other way around, say... You don't know that it's pseudoexfoliative yet, but you see other concerning things. You should think of pseudoexfoliation amongst your differential diagnosis. And this, you know, we're talking about this as a secondary open angle uh, variety, but actually, when you see narrow angles, angle closure, you have to think of pseudoexfoliation too. It's sort of the weird mimic because if those loose annuals are allowing the lens to displace forward, that can narrow your angle. doesn't all the time. It does not do that all the time. That's why we usually categorize this as an open angle glaucoma. But sometimes it can be in the differential for why your angle is narrow as well. Same for ectopia lentis. Ectopia lentis, among its, the differential for it, you should also think of pseudoexfoliation. And as we'll see in the next episode, it actually shares a lot of exam findings sort of in common with another kind of open-angle glaucoma, pigmentary glaucoma. There's some buzzwords, too, that this uh, that should make you think of immediate association with pseudoexfoliation. You want to rattle some of those off, Ben? Don't forget terms like lock cell 1, that's a gene. Fibrillar material is what's deposited. And it's uh, we think this is all due to an elastin derangement. They can get ectopia lentis that we talked about with cataract surgery or before cataract surgery. And uh, it's the most aggressive, like we said, of the secondary open-angle glaucomas. Their um, patients tend to be Scandinavian 
older and they can have a sample EC line, but there's other things that are different for a sample EC's line. Which is a gonioscopic finding one more time. Yeah. So that's all we have for this week. If you liked what you heard, you can follow us on Twitter at eyes4ears with number four. And uh, we also have our website at eyes4ears.com with the number four there as well. And if you'd like to support the podcast, then um, a rating review on iTunes or wherever you found us is really helpful. And we hope to see you guys next week. Bye. Bye.